You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 14th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In the middle of February 2021, an Arctic cold front wreaked havoc on Texas, where neither the buildings nor the state's energy systems were designed for the single-digit temperatures the state endured for roughly a week. Some 200 people died, and an estimated $50 billion changed hands as a result, creating a case study on energy systems that will continue to be studied and debated for years to come. It's an incredibly complex story involving many factors, from a simple lack of weatherization, to flaws in the state's electricity market structure, to failed governance. And as such, it really defies any simple, tidy explanations, although there were plenty of such hot takes flying around during and in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. Which is why our listeners strongly encouraged me to do a show on the topic, knowing that in classic energy transition show form, we would take the time and effort to really explore the full picture of what happened, as well as what needs to be done to keep it from happening again. And indeed, they assured me that they still wanted us to tackle the topic, even though our show on it wouldn't launch for at least two months after the crisis had disappeared from the headlines. Because we don't do hot takes here, and two months is pretty typical for developing an episode in our process, some take much longer. So, by popular demand, here you go, our slow take on the Texas blackout of 2021. And because it's such a complex topic, I needed not one or even two, but three Energy Transition Show alumni to help me address its many facets. So I invited back to the show Texas resident and journalist Russell Gold of the Wall Street Journal, who you'll remember from our discussion in episode 98 about his book on building new transmission lines, Professor Emily Grubert of the Georgia Institute of Technology, who you'll remember from our recent conversation about methane leakage in episode 140, and legal scholar Ari Pesco of Harvard Law School, who you'll remember from our discussion about legal challenges to PURPA and FERC in episode 43. Between the four of us, I think we managed to at least touch on all of the important threads of this important and tangled story, and hopefully untangle them just a little. It's also our first ever show with three guests, so I hope you will find it worthwhile. Then in the news segment, we'll review a slew of new bills introduced in the Texas legislature in the aftermath of the crisis. We'll break down the write-downs that the world's top international oil companies just recorded. We'll have a look at a new study on the effects of fossil fuel particulate emissions on health. We'll consider the climate implications of China's latest five-year plan. And we'll applaud the latest moves of the Biden administration to put the U.S. back on the right track for climate action. And now our conversation with Russell, Emily, and Ari, recorded March 19th, 2021. So let's bring them back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Russell, Emily, and Ari, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having us. Hey, Chris. Glad to be here. 
All right. So today we're going to talk about what went wrong in Texas during that cold snap in February. And we're going to talk about what should be done to prevent such a thing from happening again. Now, this is an incredibly complex topic because it entails questions about how the Texas grid is constructed and operated, how it's governed, its lack of resilience, the strengths and vulnerabilities of its various kinds of electric generators, the interdependence of its electricity and natural gas infrastructure, its market structure, and ultimately the risk that climate change poses to its current configuration, and how all these factors conspired to produce a systemic, multifaceted, and ultimately cascading failure. So there's just a lot of different facets to this topics that we are going to try to address today. But before we do that, with your forbearance for this long preamble, I just want to try to get the basic facts out of the way first so we can move on from there. So starting on February 11th, a blast of Arctic cold weather descended through the middle of North America, reaching all the way down to Texas. Temperatures in Austin plunged from 77 degrees Fahrenheit on Monday, February 8th, to just below freezing on Saturday, February 13th, and then continued down into the single digits overnight the following Monday and Tuesday. Temperatures did not rise above freezing until Thursday, February 18th, and then recovered into the low 60s by Saturday the 20th. So the middle of the state was roughly at or below freezing for about a week. Grid power demand soared toward levels that are normally only seen in Texas during the peak of summer demand as customers try to stay warm in houses that are, by and large, not insulated for such temperatures. Texas's energy system is not designed for such cold temperatures either, and all of its power generators started to fail in various ways. 185 generating units, including gas and coal-fired power plants, tripped offline. Wind turbines in West Texas froze. Nuclear unit near the Gulf of Mexico went down for more than 48 hours due to a frozen gauge. Gas-fired power plants could not get gas delivered because the gas mixture froze inside pipelines, among other things. And gas production in Texas fell by 45%, exacerbating the shortage. Ultimately, about 4 million homes lost power, some for three days or more in a row, during the freezing temperature. Temperatures. People resorted to burning their furniture and sitting in cars with the engines idling to just try to stay warm. The freezing temperatures also caused many pipes to burst and several municipal water treatment systems to fail, leaving some without water or power and causing municipalities to issue boil water notices. An unknown number of people died, including children, in the disaster, some from freezing and others from carbon monoxide poisoning, among other causes. The property damage bill has also yet to be calculated. The political leaders in Texas, including Governor Greg Abbott and former Governor Rick Perry, immediately blamed wind turbines for the failure, and Texas Senator Ted Cruz joined Abbott in trying to somehow blame the Green New Deal, which was absurd, of course, because the Green New Deal has never been anything more than an idea and certainly had nothing to do with Texas's energy system, although its figurehead sponsor, Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is a favorite political target of Republicans, so maybe that accusation had a certain truthiness for some of their constituents. In reality, as compared with the grid operator's expectations, wind accounted for about 3 gigawatts of the state's expected generation capacity that didn't perform, gas accounted for about 18 gigawatts, coal accounted for about 6, and nuclear lost about 1 gigawatt. Solar has the smallest share of power generation in Texas, but it actually produced about 50% more than expected, supplying about three quarters of a gigawatt in total. So that's the short summary of what happened. Ultimately, this was a cascading failure of multiple systems, and we're going to talk about all of that. But maybe we could start here. If the Texas infrastructure had been winterized to withstand these sub-freezing temperatures, might none of this have even happened? And 
they all could have been because all of the systems that failed in Texas work just fine in sub-freezing conditions that regularly occur in other states. So what do you think? If Texas were to winterize its systems, would that avoid all the other complex issues that have become a feature of this crisis? Russell, you want to take the first crack at this? Sure. First, you would have to winterize everything. I mean, from the wellheads in the Permian Basin all the way through the transmission system. Everything in its own way failed in this cold weather. So it's not just a matter of winterizing the power plants. It's not just a matter of making sure the wind turbines have de-icing. You really have to go back and make sure that when oil and gas is coming out of wellheads in the Permian Basin, the, the produced water isn't freezing and shutting down production. So that's the first step. And nobody has even come close to putting a dollar tag on that. So we don't know how expensive that's going to be. The Texas energy system is set up to survive 120 degrees you know these really extraordinary summer days it's not set up to survive 10 degrees and the extremes we're used to one extreme not the other so if you were to winterize it would be expensive but yeah the system would be a lot more resilient Emily, what do you think? Could winterization really be the simple answer to preventing this from happening again? Or or was the mere fact that not all of the generators were planning to be needed at this time of the year also a significant limitation? And aren't we really talking about winterizing more than the electricity and gas systems anyway? Yeah, I think with all of that, that's all really, really important to consider here, because I think there's a couple of different elements of this question. So first of all, could winterization be the simple answer to preventing this from happening again? I think it really depends on what we mean by this. From some perspectives, yeah, winterizing power plants, winterizing the natural gas grid, winterizing houses, which is something that I've been talking quite a bit about, just in terms of actually making sure that people have access to safe temperatures once you're actually at home or in a building or something along those lines. All of those types of strategies could have helped a lot in terms of keeping things on that we expected to be on. I think the point that you bring up, though, about some plants just not being available during this time of year because the grid is designed in Texas for much higher peaks in the summertime is also a piece of this. But yeah, overall, I think when we talk about this as a really cold weather event that led to a lot of bad outcomes with the power out, it's a very different type of priority maybe than thinking about preventing people from dying when conditions are outside of design standards. And so thinking very carefully about this as a whole integrated system, not just of the supply side, which did fail, but also of our demand side, which also frankly failed with a lot of people not having access to sufficient shelter under these circumstances. There's a lot going on here and it's a hugely complicated system. Well, if winterization is the answer, then thanks you all for joining and we'll wrap it up there. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ari, from a regulatory perspective, is there any entity at the state or even the federal level, like maybe the North American Electric Reliability Corporation or NERC, that would have the authority to require winterizing all of these systems that failed in Texas? And if not, like, is there any authority that could require that? Yeah. So let me start in Texas. The Public Utility Commission of Texas, following this catastrophe, initiated a rulemaking to establish weatherization standards. It already has rules that require generators to file emergency operations plans, and those plans have to address critical failure points in each generation source, including weather design limits. And the PUC, of course, has initiated review of those plans as well. But as I read it, the rule is it's a disclosure requirement for the generators, you know, sort of tell us what your plan is and what conditions you think you can operate under. But I'm not sure that the PUC has legal authority 
authority to do anything more than that at this point. We might need the Texas legislature to step in if the state's going to enforce winterization standards of the electric grid. NERC does have this authority. That's the federal, federally regulated entity that has jurisdiction over reliability. Coincidentally, it actually initiated a standard setting process for generator winterization following a January 2018 cold weather event. And that standard that they proposed would have required generators to have cold weather preparedness plans, and that would have included freeze protection measures. But here's the twist. Although NERC had actually been working on this standard since 2019, it came up for a vote in the NERC process just weeks after the Texas catastrophe, so in early March. And the industry actually voted against it. (laughs) And so a lot of the opponents were from cold weather areas that basically say, we don't need another NERC rule. We know how to do this. But FERC has authority to go back and order NERC to create a weatherization standard. And so maybe we'll have to see if FERC does that, you know, after it finishes its report on this. One quick final note on this is that when the Public Utility Commission, as I could find last, looked at this issue, a lot of generators pushed back on the idea that they should have to report on their operational limits due to cold weather. And ERCOT was against this reporting requirement as well, basically saying that this information is unreliable and that when there was a cold weather event in 2011, generators that said they were going to be able to operate actually failed. And generators basically said, we actually don't know what our cold weather operational conditions are going to be. So I think this is a a complicated issue. It kind of sounds simple. Let's just weatherize. But I think it's not that easy. And that's all on the electric side. I don't know if there's anybody that has authority to do this on the natural gas side. Hmm. Emily or Russell, anything further you want to add? Well, in answer to Ari's question, the Railroad Commission of Texas has the authority, presumably, to increase winterization requirements on the wellhead side. That's one of the issues that Texas is facing right now, that we've got this incredibly interconnected system of gas and power generation, but power generation has one set of regulators and the oil and gas system has a different set. The governor appoints the regulators that oversee the electric side. The railroad commission, the oil and gas regulators are elected. So they say they work together, but they can be at cross purposes sometimes. And I'll add on the building side, we've seen actually quite a bit of news over the last couple of months about increasing efforts to restrict local governments from being able to require tighter building standards. So again, a little bit aside from the energy supply side of this conversation, but when we think about the energy system as a combination of supply and demand systems to provide energy services to people, the fact that we're starting to see lower ability for local governments to actually demand better efficiency in buildings is actually, I think, part of this story as well. Again, slightly different targets maybe, but we do see lower authority than I think may have been true even a few years ago. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move beyond the winterization question now and talk about the structural issues that led to this fiasco. And no structural feature of this is more salient in my mind than the simple fact that Texas operates its own interconnection, meaning that there's no real transmission capacity that crosses its borders. There are just four interconnections in all of North America. The Eastern Interconnection and the Western Interconnection split the U.S. roughly in half in terms of geography. And then there's Texas and Quebec. And both Texas and Quebec elected not to be connected to their neighboring grids and operate their own interconnections instead for essentially political reasons, because they didn't want to surrender any control over their power systems to a federal authority. In fact, that's the angle that former Texas Governor Rick Perry took in the immediate aftermath of the blackout, saying, quote, Texans would be without electricity for longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. Now, I'd be willing to bet that several million freezing Texans would disagree with that assertion, but let's just hear the opinion of another Texan. So, Russell, do you think your fellow Texans feel that strong? 
strongly that they would rather risk having the grid go down again than have anybody else telling them what to do. I think after the experience of that week in February where the grid went down and we had millions of homes without power and cascading failures, boil notices across the state and homes without water. I think that this card of Texans don't want Washington telling them what to do is a little weaker than it was in January. I think Texans want electricity and reliable electricity. And if Texas can't provide that, then dot, 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 maybe it is time to reconsider that. And there's this fiction that Texas is a unconnected grid, that there's no interstate movement of electrons. That's just not true anymore. We've gotten DC ties. I mean, I agree that we're not interconnected in sort of the standard way, but we do move electrons back and forth. And it is a little strange that Texas can still make the argument that the Federal Power Act doesn't apply to us. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, Ari, that's clearly your cue. If Texas were to connect <laughs> with the eastern and western interconnections so that they could import more power from other states, I guess, in a situation like this, I'd kind of wonder how much capacity there is for that right now. They'd obviously come under the purview of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, which has jurisdiction over interstate commerce. But would that be so bad, especially considering that 47 other states seem to have no problem with it? And would there be any other regulatory authorities that might also assert some control? over Texas. In response to what Russell said, there are a couple of these DC ties. And the reason FERC doesn't have jurisdiction because of those ties is because they were approved under relatively obscure provision of the Federal Power Act that I think was added as part of the energy legislation in the 1970s and 1978. And they basically say, if FERC approves this interconnection, it doesn't mean that FERC is going to have control over whoever's on that side of the interconnection. It was basically written with ERCOT in mind. And if folks in Texas decide they do want to connect in a more robust way with the rest of the country, they could go to Congress and ask Congress to continue to exempt ERCOT from FERC's market regulation. So Congress could do that if it chose to do that, basically allow more interconnections, but keep this hands-off approach with regard to the market regulation. Hmm. I don't think there's anything bad per se about FERC. I think Russell said it well, this is really just about control. And Texas wants to maintain its authority to set market rules for ERCOT. And if it interconnects in a conventional way, it will lose that authority to FERC. There's some other minor things that FERC could do as well. I think they're relatively minor, like approving mergers. I doubt that's really anybody losing sleep over that in Texas. But if they did interconnect, then FERC would have authority over that as well. But no, I think this is just Texas feeling like they need to be Texas. So, Emily, if Texas were to stop acting like an island and connect more completely to its neighboring grids, could that alone have prevented this sort of thing from happening again? I mean, especially considering that other neighboring states also experience sub-freezing temperatures and strain on their own grids? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think to Russell's point that there are actually some DC ties already. I believe what we saw during this event was that they weren't actually able to take very much advantage of that because the areas that they were connected to actually didn't have any excess capacity either. Like my parents <laughs> live in Oklahoma and they had outages too. Just thinking about some of the, the impacts of being connected to something that has the capacity to help you or not, I think is a big part of this conversation. So the way that I've been thinking about it a lot from just trying to explain the impact of Texas having a 
fairly isolated grid, is that the weakness here really was that the grid itself was small enough to have a huge system, this freeze, take over the entirety of the grid. And so the entire grid was under these very difficult conditions at once. The big advantage of the bigger interconnections isn't purely that they're connected to each other, it's that usually they tend to be big enough to actually manage these types of systems. ERCOT generally has reasonable geographic diversity, and so there are times when one part of the state might be stressed and another isn't, and they're able to move power around. In this case, it was not actually big enough to get outside of that extreme event to some extent. But yeah, you know, connecting to a couple of the neighboring regions may not do that much if the whole system is still going to be under these dire consequences at the same time. So really thinking about what the connection looks like and how interconnected it really is and how much you're actually able to move as part of this conversation, I think as much as just the connectivity. I think the other thing that gets left out of this conversation a lot is that we tend to talk about ERCOT's isolation as just being Texas being Texas, but there have been some real advantages for the state in having that authority. So particularly in terms of like transmission siting and so on, it's not purely something with no benefits either. And so that's an interesting conversation I think is worth having. Do any of you know just offhand how much of that existing interconnection capacity beyond the borders does exist, like in gigawatts or... I think it's in single digits of gigawatts, low single digits. I was going to say, I think it's less than 10. I had six in my head, but I'm not sure that's right. I thought there's only two connections. There's two to Mexico, and then there's two to the Eastern Interconnect, I thought. I think that's right. And I thought they were pretty small, but I don't know the number offhand. Okay. All right. Well, the grid in Texas is run by the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, known by its acronym ERCOT. And ERCOT is a nonprofit independent system operator, or ISO, and it runs the market to set power prices. It's also required to maintain a balance between electricity supply and demand. So when ERCOT saw that the grid was stressed and that some of the generators were offline and not responding, it had to resort to emergency procedures in which it ordered the distribution utilities to cut back on their power consumption. And it does this to avoid overwhelming the whole Texas grid because if the whole grid goes down, it can be very difficult and slow to bring it back online. It has to resort to what's called black start resources to get power flowing through the grid before generators can be brought back online. And all of that has to happen in concert with customers drawing power from the grid. It's very complex. So if ERCOT had not ordered the utilities to stop drawing power, more generators would have tripped offline for safety reasons. And then it probably would have been months before power was restored. And according to ERCOT officials, they ordered the blackouts within seconds or minutes of running that risk. One of the key things that grid operators must do is maintain the frequency of the alternating current, which in the U.S. is set at 60 cycles per second or 60 hertz. And even half a cycle of deviation from that frequency will typically result in automatic load shedding or other control actions to restore system frequency. And shortly after midnight on Monday, February 15th, the frequency on the ERCOT system started dropping. Within the space of about 10 minutes, the frequency dropped from 59.4 hertz as multiple generators failed. And then ERCOT ordered load shedding, but the frequency kept dropping. Only ordering 5 gigawatts of load shedding enabled ERCOT to arrest the decline. And then it had to order another 5.5 gigawatts of load shedding just to get the frequency back in range. That's pretty scary stuff. So Russell, although nobody faulted ERCOT for ordering the load shedding to keep most of the grid operating, 
there have been some criticisms leveled at them about who was plunged into the blackout and whose power stayed on. Do we know how those decisions were made? And is there any reason to think that in the aftermath of all of this, there will be questions about the equitability of how the loads were disconnected? You know, I remember, for example, hearing one anecdote from somebody who was in the blackout saying that they could look across the street to empty downtown office buildings that still had their lights on and wondering how that could have even been possible. Yeah, I mean, this question's come up before the Texas legislature, and there are a lot of people who are really angry because we were promised rolling blackouts. These blackouts did not roll. We had people who without power for three and a half, four days. Part of the problem was is that there was such an extraordinary level of load shedding required, 20 gigawatts, 25 gigawatts, that the local transmission and distribution companies ran out of options. So for instance, the municipally owned Austin Energy, the CEO testified, I think they've got something like 400 feeders on their system, 200 of them they couldn't turn off because they had critical infrastructure, hospitals and fire stations, things like that. And so when you're being asked to shed, I think 40, 50% of your load, you run out of the ability to do rolling blackouts. Hmm. And so one of the problems and one of the things that got people so upset was that you had some homes, I mean, I'm fortunate, I turned out I was on the same feeder as a local hospital. I did not lose power, but friends of mine, you know, a mile away lost power for three or four days. And so the question was like, what happened here? What's going on? And how was this done? Having reported on this for the last month, I can tell you that these decisions were made very quickly under extraordinary duress. ERCOT basically told TDUs at one point not to try to do rolling blackouts because they were so afraid of the stability of the grid and maintaining that 60 hertz. But the other issue that's come up, which is sort of fascinating, is that a number of parts of the gas infrastructure, compressor stations, even the, the wellheads, were not on the critical infrastructure list. And so as the load shedding began, the problems compounded because some of the blackouts hit parts of the gas infrastructure and then we couldn't deliver the gas that was expected to. So mm. I would not be at all surprised if there's a very thorough examination of what is on the critical infrastructure list, what isn't, how do you decide who gets blacked out and who doesn't. It was a mess of Texas-sized proportions. Wow. I had not heard that this topology of the feeders kind of was part of the question. That's interesting. So, Emily, if ERCOT had not reacted as it did and the whole grid did go down, what kind of pain would Texas have been in for as they resorted to these black start procedures? An incredible amount from what I understand, because I think one of the things that is honestly kind of scary to look back at is the fact that in kind of the after action, it seems like many of the Black Start generators that are kept around for events like that actually would not have been available, which is something that came out in the after action report of after the 2011 event as well, that many of the Black Start generators that are basically there to help you turn the grid back on if it does go all the way down actually were out as well. So it's a little unclear what that would have looked like. It's good that they did not have to find out really, but yeah, the entire grid going down is a very serious and very scary type of thing to really be thinking about. And I think a lot of the conversation about, you know, what would have happened if they hadn't been able to essentially correct the voltage again is really a question of 
how much damage may have been done. So when those frequencies started to drop, a lot of the talk about more generators tripping offline, if it had stayed at that level for longer, is really around safety protocols that many of those facilities use. Because if you go under frequency for too long, you can actually start to get really severe damage to equipment. It's a little unclear whether this would have been a situation that takes days to turn back on because things basically did protectively shut off or would have protectively shut off versus a situation where a lot of facilities actually would have sustained pretty severe damage. And so that combination of questions about how serious would it have actually been if the frequency had continued to stay very low, and then what would you honestly have done given that many of the Black Star resources were unavailable, I think makes this something that does need to be taken very, very seriously. And again, like going through some of the 2011 reports after this particular freeze this year, the fact that the Black Start resources were also seen to be unavailable 10 years ago, I think is honestly the most the most severe failure in weatherization. Like, I think we can have a lot of conversations about what the right level of weatherization is for the grid as a whole, but the idea that your Black Start resources are not available is actually pretty serious. Yeah. Can batteries be used as Black Start? I believe if they're designed with that functionality in mind, they can be. I'm not 100% sure exactly what that means in terms of system architecture, though. Yeah, because obviously there needs to be a component to generate some synthetic inertia, right, if you don't actually have the spinning mass. Yep, and a lot of grids have more hydro than Texas does. Texas has a bit of hydro, but oftentimes those resources are pretty useful for black start situations as well. What about this topology issue that, that Russell just brought up? Is this something that's been studied? Yeah, I think we have seen some discussion of the fact that I think we're a little bit less good at turning things off precisely than we thought. What's really interesting, and I haven't seen very specific investigation of this this time around, frankly, is that watching the way that some of the California reactions have happened with respect to the public safety shutoffs and things like that over the past few years, that system has actually gotten better at isolating blackouts and really trying to control precisely where it's going and when. And from what I understand, there has been actually quite a lot of learning in terms terms of what those communication protocols need to look like, what you need to understand about the topology of the grid, et cetera, to try to limit what those blackouts actually do. So I suspect there could be some some interesting lessons just from the fact that California has had to think very carefully about how to plan for rolling blackouts in advance in a way that most other places haven't had to yet. But yeah, this notion that you basically have winners and losers in power outages based on how close you are to critical infrastructure that probably does tend to be located in certain communities over others and so on and so forth. It's an environmental justice question. It's an equity question. And the extent that we know precisely what this looks like everywhere, I think, is less than what we would like. I mean, maybe this also argues for the value of smart DERs. Like, what if ERCOT could have ordered individual appliances offline instead of just cutting off power to a feeder? Yep. And I think the conversation about whether we're actually leveraging our advanced metering infrastructure to the degree that has been promised is also a massive, massive question. Yeah, yeah. So Ari, what do we know about how ERCOT chooses which utilities are going to have to shed their load and how those utilities choose which customers are going to lose power? Because it really is up to the kind of that distribution utility level. And are there possible legal claims here about whether those decisions were made fairly and equitably? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Predictably, the Texas legislature is moving a whole Texas-sized passel of bills in reaction to the February crisis, and equally predictably, they're all over the shop, reflecting both appropriate action and merely convenient politics. But in my estimation, it's a piecemeal approach that falls well short of a coherent strategy to develop a more resilient energy system and electricity market. Here's just a brief sample of the bills. House Bill 11 outlines weatherization requirements for utilities. House Bill 12 orders a study of a statewide alert system for power outages. House Bill 13 would establish a new agency, the Texas Energy Disaster Reliability Council, to manage and prevent the kind of emergency that happened in Texas. Senate Bill 13 would require state investment funds, including state pension funds and Texas's massive K-12 school endowment, to divest from companies that divest from fossil fuel companies, and it would give the state immunity for doing so. An early version of the bill directed the state comptroller to create a list of companies and funds that boycott fossil fuel companies and allowed the attorney general to take enforcement action against state funds that do not divest from companies on the list. House Bill 17 is a preemptive effort to head off any bans on new natural gas hookups. It comes after the city of Austin considered such a proposal, as more than 40 cities in California have already done. Big gas producing states, including Louisiana and Oklahoma, have passed legislation prohibiting local bans, and several other states are considering similar measures. House Bill 10 would change the governance of the Public Utility Commission of Texas, requiring its board to have at least three governor appointees, one lieutenant governor appointee, and one House Speaker appointee, in addition to the 11 other members already outlined in the current code, and so on. It'll be interesting to see how many of these new bills actually make it into law, and then whether or not they're actually enforced, unlike their predecessors. Item 2. According to a recent report from the International Energy Agency, or IEA, the world's top eight international oil and gas companies have wiped a record $105 billion off their books and announced plans to lay off up to 40,000 workers since the end of 2019. Shell topped the list by writing down the value of this Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.